most of us find the healthcare system totally confusing. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. In Getting Better Healthcare, Dr. Steve Feldman and his expert guests walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take charge of our own and our family's healthcare and what needs to be done for a healthier medical system. It's time to find out what to do. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman. On Getting Better Healthcare, we like to show you the different parts of the medical care system so you can understand the health care system to better make sure you get great health care. Today, we're going to look at a really important part of that health system. We're going to lift the veil away and try to understand perhaps the most important part of our health care system, the doctors. Now, you probably feel like you may know doctors already. In fact, you probably know a doctor, maybe a few doctors. Hopefully, you have some sense of what doctors are like from knowing that doctor. On the other hand, you may have heard of other doctors, and I think there's a real tendency for us to hear about the problem doctors because those are the ones that newspapers, radio, TV are going to tell you stories about. And they might be horror stories. And it, it may seem scary sometimes wondering, gee, am I seeing a really good doctor? Well, this is our chance to get a better understanding of what doctors are like. Our guest today is Dr. John Henry Fifferling. Dr. Fifferling is a medical anthropologist focusing on well-being of, uh, of professionals. He completed an undergraduate degree of, at City University in New York, a master's at Hunter College, and his doctorate from the Pennsylvania State University. He had a National Institutes for Mental Health-funded postdoctoral training position at Duke University Medical Center, where he studied residency stress in internal medicine. He's held a number of academic appointments, and in 1979, he founded the Center for Professional Well-Being, a nonprofit educational institution that provides support and solutions for reducing the depleting stressors of professional life. Welcome, John Henry. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. You're welcome. I look forward to our chat. So in the introduction, I mentioned that you are a medical anthropologist. Tell our listeners, what is a medical anthropologist? It's a someone who was trained in anthropology, studying uh, past history and present history of people all over the world, and then specializes in, in one area. But within that specialty of looking at that population or that group, they're interested in, in health and culture perspectives and what that, how it's transmitted, how people perceive it, what they believe about health and culture. So that would be a traditional medical anthropologist. So, for example, when I did training in, in graduate school, I worked uh, among witch doctors in South America, in the islands of Bolivia and Argentina. I tried to study the way people believed uh, and saw what the, the health problems and disease problems were in their world and what they did about it. So that would be traditional medical anthropology. I took that kind of training background as an anthropologist and then tried to apply it, uh, originally unplanned, into looking at the anthropology of health professionals, particularly physicians. That, that's wonderful because on this show, we're trying to tell our listeners what the healthcare system is really like. What are these people within the, the healthcare system who are taking care of patients? What are they about? What do they think? Um, you're putting this medical anthropology background uh, into play in a unique situation at the Center for, for Professional Well-Being. Can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Well, the, the Center for Professional Wellbeing in Durham, North Carolina, is a nonprofit charitable organization uh, designed to apply the anthropological research and studies we've done on healthcare, provi healthcare providers. And within that, it's, it, we're particularly interested in what have we learned about what makes them feel well, makes providers do well, function well, feel well, and live life in a balanced way, and what things stress them out. And so we're really an activist organization because all applied anthropologists are activists. So they study the natives, in this case doctors, they find out what their problems are, and then they do something about it. Whatever the population is, mine just happens to be uh, providers, uh, physician providers and, and uh, nurses and anybody else who's is, uh, in that domain, and what kind of things stress them out and therefore has an impact on their happiness and success and on problems that occur uh, to their patients. So, we're, so we try to help docs do better so that they're better able to listen, to understand, and to work with people that happen to be their patients at one point in their life. So that's kind of the ultimate objective is to, to help doctors deliver better care. So when the doctor is healthy, uh, it's more lively, li likely that the patient will get someone who is really clear and present. So that's kind of our ultimate objective. Excellent. Well, most people know a doctor or two, um, and then they've heard about other physicians. What they hear is not always a good thing because if they're hearing about doctors because, say, the doctor made the front page of the newspaper, it might be because the doctor was accused of raping somebody or some something you know cutting off the wrong leg or something horrific in your or, mind or, or saw something or heard something on television or radio yeah or so, the movies so you in your job you get to see a, a range of physicians um, tell us what are physicians like i think the easiest way of describing physicians is they're they're humans or people first and medicine is their special interest and then there's so they're just like everybody else at whatever, however they're born and raised, and then eventually specialize in, in the medical school and beyond medical school. And that tremendously impacts how they become as they become a mature adult human being. But they're people first with all the same strengths and weaknesses and modes of ha handling stress and as, as anybody else. Just things happen as you spend all these years in training. 8, 10, 12, 14 years of training and then practicing in, you know, in, that, in that world, in that way, for the rest of your professional life. So that impacts how they be, what they become and what things are rewarded by their, their peers and their, in society and what things they're punished for. But they're people first, and that's really important to understand that. So they're not the stereotype that you see or read or hear about their Humans, just like all the rest of us, they have sleep deprivation, sleep needs, and sleep deprivation problems, and they need to exercise and eat well and and uh, look forward to life and have the same ills everybody else has, including whether it's diabetes or obesity or uh, cancer, grief. So when you just say like anybody else. So when you say they're, they're not the stereotype, were you but, talking about on, a positive stereotype or a negative let me, stereotype? Let me interrupt you, please, Steve, yeah. if that's okay. There really is, is one big difference. The nature of how they're raised and, and become mature professionals is that they spend so much time with other doctors who, by society's pressure and, and their own uh, 
relationship with each other are sanctioned, punished, and for not reaching out for help. And that's a big difference. Patients, everybody talks, well, here's where you can go, here's you can ask, here's my opinion. Doctors don't talk about their distress or their illness or their diseases. They're really isolated a lot, and it's not okay among, among their peers to talk about their problems or to reach out for help. That's a big difference between patients and doctors. Okay. Well, I, I can, I'm hearing what you're saying. You're saying that there's this enormous difference between doctors and patients. Um, one of the c- characteristics of physicians is they're inculcated into a life where they're supposed to be independent and can't ask for help. I'm not going to cover that right now, but we're going to come back to that because Mm -hmm. that is so central. So let's talk a little bit more generally first. Um, You mentioned their training. Why don't we we tell our listeners, what is the training of a doctor like? Well, it starts with pre-medical training, meaning you have to pass a whole series of of college courses, so that's four years of college, specializing in things that prepare you to take exams to get into medical school. That's already a specialty training inside, med- inside undergraduate school. So that's four years. Then you have at least four years in medical school. Some take a little bit longer. And that gives you an MD degree, but you can't practice. Then you have to do residency, which is at least three years. And this is where they specialize. So you're already talking about 11 years before you go out and the world treats you as a practicing doctor, even, even though as a resident you're practicing, but you're practicing under supervision, so you're called a trainee by, your, by the place that you're training under. So that's 11 years uh, separating yourself from the, from the other path of people in life who go out and get their jobs, do their work, uh, become whatever their field is. That's 11 years of a kind of isolation into the tribe of other physicians and, and, and their professors. And that's like nearly tribal elders, and that's why the anthropologist sees them as a tribal group. Yeah, and you know that's that's probably on the on the low side because you know I know I was a little bit on the slow path. It took me fifteen years, and I imagine the heart surgeons, you know, yep. it's, it could you be took a minimal of eleven years before you become. You feel like you're free enough to ply your trade, to be your professional. All out of the time, you're a student or a trainee, and very low on the totem pole of of having status and prestige and autonomy. That's a long time, for especially for an adult, because many of them are already married, have children, have families, etc., and they're still treated in many ways like children as medical students or residents. One of the stereotypes, well, you mentioned stereotypes. One of the stereotypes I think people hear is about greedy doctors, especially in this time of focus on health care reform and the cost of medical care. Is, is greed a central part of the physician life? I'm not sure I've ever seen a study defining greed very carefully and proving there's more greed among physicians and whatever subspecialty there is or specialty there is than there is among uh, pe- merchants or business people or uh, in investment bankers in, in Wall Street. There, there's certainly a stereotype of the of the doctor who is only out uh, for money, partly since the medical profession has begun become so much more a business than it was traditionally. It's still not a business in many many parts of the world. The average doctor in in, uh, in Russia, for example, is uh, makes no more than the average fireman in the United States, if they're lucky. Mm-hmm. 
my cousin is a is a pediatric uh, um, neurologist in uh, neurosurgeon. I'm sorry, in Argentina, and uh, he would call us when he was still in training and then in prac in the beginning of, of academic practice, and he was lucky when he got a hundred dollars a month, and he's a sub sub specialist. So. The, the nature of what physicians can make from the business of medicine or practicing medicine is really different from country to country. Being on the inside, I get to see things like doctors coming in on the weekend to, to see a patient who needs help, doctors going out of their way, maybe making house calls, um, uh, going beyond what's typically expected of them. Trying working to on holidays, working on Christmas, working on Easter, Okay, so I, I can see where you're heading with this because you're heading into their own well-being. We'll come back to that sure. because that, that, that's a beautiful line. Let's talk just about the, 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 what, the, kind, what kind of person these doctors are. I mean, they're on the, I don't see rule, the greed. I not see the smarter or, 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 or dumber than, than anybody else at the, at the educated level, but they work really hard. Because discipline and, and stick-to-itiveness is how you get through the kind of education that is required to get through med school and through residency. So they work very, very hard and long and are um, deprived of most things that people are used to in that age, for that age of someone who is 30 or 35 years old, because they're when everybody else is home resting or partying or enjoying a ball game, they're working or studying. So the average resident in post-medical school is working 80 to 120 hours a week. It used to be more than that. Okay. One question, though, before we get to that aspect of their lives, that they're deprived and... and, and, and I think and, they're and, deprived yeah, well, of normal social interaction and normal rest. Sure enough. One of the words you left out, though, as you were describing how committed they are and how industrious they are, you left out the word caring. Did you leave out that word on purpose, or do you feel like caring is not part of why they are so driven to work on behalf of their patients? Um, I'm going to make a strong generalization. I think that the average person going into medicine is like the average person going into veterinary school. They absolutely love animals as pre-vet, pre-veterinarians or in vet school, and they, have, and they really do are caring and empathetic and compassionate and committed to making a difference in life as they go into medical school. Then they have four years of grind, of memorization and regurgitation and, and uh, unbelievable hours spent trying to make it through medical school and then exams. And it continues for year after year after year afterwards. And that dampens down dramatically the, the commitment and the caring and the altruism that they come the idealism that they come into, they go into medicine and look at medicine as a career. Many of them still have it, but it's dampened down and worn away by the kind of thing, training they have to go through. So I have no doubt that most people go into medicine with a strong altruistic and caring orientation, and many, of course, always can do that all of their life. I wonder, I'm going to disagree. I will say that my experience tells me that one of the reasons they spend time with their patients on the holidays and come into work on a weekend and work late into the night is actually because it makes them feel good taking care of patients. It does. It's an incredible high to know that that day, that hour, that 
diagnosis or that intervention, I made a difference for somebody else's life. So that's a tremendous high and a tremendous pleasure that you get out of medicine uh, any time. So, but there's also a dark side uh, of medicine that you have to try to balance that. That, that so I'm not that, disagreeing at all, Steve. I'm saying that is a tremendous high. But there's so many roadblocks, bureaucratic roadblocks and insurance roadblocks and, and uh, paper roadblocks and dollar roadblocks and, insur- and uh, medical malpractice roadblocks, all of which, uh, which uh, prevents the human-human connection. That's the, special, the most special part of medicine. It frustrates. And that's unexpected to most physicians, most persons who become doctors. And it, that's the clash, Steve. That I, that unrealistic. That all of a sudden, that expectation and the clash of reality. I've got to do this to do, to be able to connect. I've got to do this to be able to make a difference. And I've still got to do fill in the blank that that's imposed upon them. Yes, I would say, as you were describing, that that it gives us doctors a sense of frustration. That shoot, we're just trying to care for the patient. And then there's all these system issues that are in our way from doing it. I mean, that's the same refrain, Steve, that you hear from nurses, that they want to, all they want to do is be at the bedside, make a difference, care for somebody else in their, as their patients, and then they have hour after hour after hour of requirements and documentation and bureaucracy and obligation and auditing and so on down the line and paperwork. And what they did, went into nursing for is to, is to touch another human being. And they're stopped from doing, prevented from doing that. And that's the frustration of nurses. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare. I'm Steve Feldman. We're talking today with John Henry Fifferling, director of the Center for Professional Well-Being in Durham, North Carolina. Okay, John Henry, now is our chance to talk about what I think most excites you, and that's the dark side. Tell us, tell us about the dark side here. I'm not sure that's what most excites me. What's it, what, what, what has kept me doing this for almost 40 years is, is doing something to make a difference so there isn't a continuing dark side of medicine that impacts on the lives of the doctors, their friends, their colleagues, their family, and, of course, many times on their patients. So, so, so step my one. My main interest is preventing the kinds of problems that, that wipe the lives uh, and the person. Uh, including the altruistic person. That's the stuff that I'm concerned about, trying to make a difference so that doesn't occur. And when it is occurring, making a difference so that they can, we can help these people turn their lives around from whatever has hurt them or caused them to no longer be the kind of professional that they wanted to be or we wanted them to be. Yes, so you've, you've touched on this to a degree, but let's make it clear for the listeners. What do you mean by the dark side? The kinds of problems that reduce the chance of the physician showing up clear, present, coherent, making wise, uh, cautious uh, decisions for the for the best care of that particular patient or that particular patient's family. Oh, that's that's sort of different, or maybe maybe it isn't so different from some so of the things I was thinking. I, I was thinking about my rea- my relationship with my wife. And uh, my kids. So, uh, but and that that's encompassed in this as well, isn't it? Go over that again. Hit me with that again. So, so you were talking about the things that prevent the doctor from having the great relationship and, and doing what they need for patients. I thought the dark side that you were talking about was my relationship with my wife and my relationship with my kids and how medicine interferes with that. But maybe what you're saying is that that's encompassed. That my home life 
problems are going to rub off on what happens to me at work. Your home life problems will, or your practice problems will, or your or the political problems at the hospital you work at, or in the or in the place that you practice, the organization that you're practicing. Those are all components that produce dark side features, and those could be depression. Those could be uh, could be uh, anger. Those could be could be uh, uh, debilitating issues that cause you to not be clear, to not be coherent, to be to be uh, to uh, treat people like commodities versus other people. That is, the the patient is just a gallbladder, or is just a a, uh, a tumor or is just uh, a diabetic or whatever, that those, those kinds of things happen to prevent uh, the person optimally functioning, in this case, the person as a physician. So, those are all dark sides. So that could be suicide. It could be drug and alcohol problems. It could be behavior that is unprofessional, uncivil, uh, sometimes fraudulent, sometimes criminal. All of those things are dark side boundary violations when, when doctors lose sense, sight of, of what they're expected to be as professionals with patients and get involved with patients sexually or financially. Those are all dark side phenomena. So as I put this big picture together, we're starting with some really bright folks who did well in high school to get into a good college. They did well in a good college to get into, they did really well in a good college to get into medical school, and they score really well on standardized tests. Mm-hmm. Then they finish all that training where we're where facts are literally stuffed into their heads, and then they come out and they're not—they're they're doctors, but really they're just oh, neophytes at that point. World. Yeah, and so now they're doing years of residency, and then they come out in the real world. They care deeply about their patients, hopefully still at this point, but maybe it's a little bit rubbing off. They're, but they're spending time in their work. They're driven by this this culture that they have with their colleagues. They're missing time at home with their families. Uh, they're missing time with their wives, their kids, those relationships beginning to fall apart. And missing apart. time doing the things that keep them together, their and exercise, their adequate sleep, their yeah. adequate vacations. And all this insurance stuff. Have, many of them have tremendous debt loads. And all this insurance stuff and financial issues of their practice that really they never intended to have great interest in. are they just didn't know about are just, are, Yeah, and they're like carrying it like a camel, a burden on their backs. And so sometimes something breaks. And, and what happens is because the culture of all the guilds in the world and all the professional societies is very secretive, uh, nobody reaches out and gives them feedback about what is happening and what they're seeing. They don't give adequate and clear and timely feedback to their colleagues. The nurses don't give them the feedback, or if they do, they're worried about getting fired themselves because they've said something about the behavior of this particular doc or this person they're working with. And so this, we have this what we call a conspiracy of silence. And so things build from small to medium to large, and then finally it may break and people discover it and uh, the dark side happens, whether it's, whether it's uh, DWI or whether it's uh, some fraudulent phenomena or, or uh, severe depression. Okay, well, uh, let's talk about three issues then. We're going to talk about the kinds of problems that develop, um, what, what you do when, when something really is broken, and then the third, maybe the most important of these, is preventive issues. I want to talk first about what are the most common ones, because I imagine the most common ones are not the ones that are the most visible. Probably the rarest ones, you know, the really heinous things 
are probably the most visible because they make the cover in the newspaper. But what are the? But a, after a lot of people have been hurt. Yeah. So what are the most? But those common? are the rarest ones. The most common ones are burnout and stress disorders, and and the and psychosomatic illness among, in this case, the person of the physician, and all of those build slowly but surely until something breaks, whatever that is. It, it may be the family at home, so that their marital disharmony goes down the tube, and then they're sad at home. Those are the most common stress disorders. And then the culture of physicians is don't reach out to a colleague. Don't tell them you notice anything. Don't give them feedback on what you've noticed that are changes in their behavior. And so they're isolated and alone. And, wow, when you're isolated and alone, all stress problems get worse. And then the question is how do you deal with it? Do you deal with it? Internally, and you get depressed and sad and exhausted, or you deal with it externally by screaming and yelling and ranting and raving, or producing more, or materialism, or acting out, or drinking more, etc. So, so that's kind of what happens. Okay, so you've got this physician where where the stress has been too much, something broke, and now some inappropriate behavior is happening. I think one of the things some listeners might be concerned about is that the doctors are going to try to sweep it under the rug and hide it from the public. And, and, and Is that an issue? Absolutely. Like in, any, like in any population, people hide things that are either shameful or embarrassing or unacceptable, and even more so when there's a tremendous high recognition and status and, and, uh, and leeway to do things that other people can't do, access to private, private and confidential things. So there's a tremendous sweeping under the rug. I'm not sure there's any worse sweeping under the rug among physicians than there is among politicians or among mayors or among Supreme Court judges or policemen or any other group because they have their own set of issues that are actually quite comparable. The data on alcoholism is just as high rates among veterinarians as it is among attorneys, as it is among physicians, and so on down the line. Now, when you say sweep it under the rug, are you talking about what the person themselves well, is doing? Or whether, the let me finish. The person denying they have a problem, their staff not coming to grips or not confronting them or being reticent or fearful of confronting them because then they'll get yelled at, screamed, lose their job. And most people who work in healthcare, about 90%, uh, are not physicians, of course. And their job is they're, they're the sole source provider or they're the main breadwinner of the family. So they don't want to confront their boss with whatever the problems are because the problems are – that confrontation is an embarrassing phenomenon. Well, so I the see. person who has more power will more likely than not either disregard or put down or worse the person who's confronting them. You know, I can go along with those. So that's I mean, a conspiracy I, of silence. Now, yeah, don't I, tell the doc what's really going on, I, even though he's just done, he or she has just done something – uncivil or missed something or totally missed something. I can see that for the person or the person who's going to sweep it on. I can see the staff and, the, and, and especially with this imbalance of power. And the colleagues. But then comes the colleagues, and that's where my experience, at least so far, you have a lot more experience with broken doctors than I do. But my experience is, for example, you take the North Carolina Medical Board. If a patient brings them a complaint – the board acts upon it. They, they, not only will they act, they will do a thorough investigation. They will. That's correct. They're not there. To, I don't think they see their role as to protect broken doctors. The North Carolina Medical Board sees their role to protect patients from exposure to people that are less, profe- less than professional. 
That's their role. And they're, they take it seriously. They're a political, public organization. That is their role. They take it seriously. They don't. They're not there the hiding things. Takes it very seriously. Excellent. Well, I think that's important for listeners to know because knowing that, if they see a problem, it's very easy to write a quick letter to but, the medical. But it's board. also it, it's also easy for someone to send information to the board that's uh, frivolous or they're just angry at someone and they take it out on the doctor or people make things up. People make things up all the time, whoever they are. So the board has to take the complaint seriously. But many of these complaints are frivolous complaints. Well, better that there's a few frivolous ones than to miss serious ones that would be underreported. Well, but most, I don't know the data, of course. I don't think anybody does, but I'm assuming that most people just leave the doctor if there's a problem, don't know what the problem is since everybody is, since we're so uh, capable of covering up whatever the issues are, and we only see the doctor very, very, for very short periods of time anyway. It's the colleagues who really see what's going on, the nurse colleagues, the staff colleagues, the, the uh, people in the hospital that work with them in the operating room, uh, but they don't say very much to them or report them very much. The patients see very, very little of the doctor's world, and when the patient is going there, the patient is needy and hurting, and worried, and so they're just, am I getting treated by this person and trying to, and doing what I think a doctor can do, not knowing what a doctor can or cannot do. So they're the smallest viewer of what's really going on in the doc's life, and the doctors, since they're seeing people so quickly, can inform, can keep their, their, their act together for those short periods of time when they're doing patient-doctor interaction. So the patients are not really observant of most things that are going on. Because they're more likely than not subtle, mm-hmm. not overt, as you've already addressed. When it does get to the board and they, they realize there's something wrong here, mm-hmm. um, my sense is that they do try to fix things rather than just give up on the doctor right away. They do. The board tries to get help, tries to make sure that that, per- that, that person is re-educated if they've, if they've got less skills and what they're supposed to know at that particular time, that, that their competency level is and tries to get them help so that if, they're, if the, the problem is, this, is, is discovered, that they can rehabilitate them so that they... Because these are people that have spent a lifetime getting that training and, we're, and are needed by society. So I have, I have no problems with what the board is trying to do, uh, however undersourced and underserved and underfunded it is, in my opinion. Now, I also get the sense that you think it's much better to prevent these problems before they start. How do you do that? I think there's a simple answer. Direct, clear, honest communication about what you see with a colleague. You give it to your colleague or to, or to, your, to your partner or to your chief or to your service line person, and that is, taken, is really taken into consideration. And there's a, an honest environment for feedback. That is not the case, in my opinion, for what occurs in most situations. A simple generalization, though. Mm-hmm. So our, our biggest problem is a deficit of feedback. And patients are, are a piece of it, so are their staff, and, but most important, I think, are their colleagues. Would but you... it's scary to give someone feedback because it's embarrassing and mm-hmm. it's stigmatizing and it's shaming. And you're not perfect either. So the, doc, so the person who's gotten that message from you that you've got a problem can just as easily remember how you missed something or you were exhausted and made a poor diagnosis or didn't write some chart up or didn't follow up on whatever you were supposed to follow up on. 
So there but for the grace of God go I. So we keep this, this uh, indirect communication and non-communication kind of as the rule. And I, and I think that's what we have to break. We have to create a, a, an environment where there's much better feedback from people that, are, that have a, a base of, of observation and not just one little phenomenon at one point in time when that happened that, that next morning when the doctor has been up all night long and loses their temper the next morning. You know, it happen to any of us. You lose enough sleep, you're going, to lo- you're going to be very irritable and may lose your temper. One of the things that really helped me was getting anonymous feedback from patients. And I, I became interested in patient satisfaction, and we started that doctorscore.com uh, website where people could rate their do- doctors anonymously so that doctors could get feedback easily, inexpensively. You look at the open comments that people make, and generally it's not about wrong diagnoses or wrong treatments, really about doctors' communication skills. It's about compassion and communication Which, and acknowledgement and quality listening, correct? Yeah. One of the things and that, it's really important to get that stuff. Yeah. One of the things that, that I learned about feedback was the, the way to think about feedback is when you get negative feedback from a customer, if you're in business or from a patient or if you're in, if you're in medicine – is to think about it as a gift. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's just feedback. It may not be negative. It may be positive, or it may be indicative, or it may be something that just happened very rarely. But just accept the feedback without having to defend right away and explain and debate and argue. Just accept feedback as, as a gift. Very important. One of the things we try to teach our physicians and our students in our workshops and our classes but they've spent a lifetime protecting themselves and building barriers to receiving that because so much of training was feedback that was critical, sarcastic, and negative and abusive. That hurts. So they've got to protect themselves from that, and that's their training for years and years and years and years. They've got to protect themselves. And so now you expect them to come out and be open. They spent a lifetime, professional lifetime, defending. So that's our biggest problem, Steve. So... I was going to ask you, you know, what you thought we should change about the way doctors are trained. So it sounds like the number one thing you would change is the feedback system that they're given through college and and, and medical school. Number one, give them regular, timely feedback and give them positive strokes when they respond to the feedback and they improve, just like I do with my students, with my basketball players and my basketball team, or did when I was a coach. Same exact thing. Number two, I don't want them to... I want them to get rewarded for accepting that mistakes and near misses are part of reality and that no doctor is going to be perfect and medicine is never going to be perfect and there's something wrong with them if they make any kind of a mistake. And what's the context of the mistake? So we have to eliminate this tremendous pressure that the doctor is either a god or is perfect. They're not god. They're not perfect. They're human beings like all the rest of us, and medicine is their special interest. We have to change that kind of societal and and uh, value and media value and practice value within the collegial community of, of physicians. And number three, it has to be okay to say, I don't know. In residency, in medical school, and in practice, okay, what are we going to learn right now? Versus getting shamed if you say, I don't know. And that's the kind of behavior that you see. Uh, hour after hour in the inside of medicine when they're interacting with their colleagues. If they say, I don't know, they get put down and stigmatized and shamed and isolated as if there's something wrong when you say that. 
medicine is a lifetime education. So for a lifetime, you, it's, it's to be expected to be able to say, I don't know, okay, what am I going to learn now? And things are changing so quickly. Those are the three things I would do if you said, tomorrow you're in charge of all medical education in the United States, no abusive education, no expectations of perfectionism or, or what we call MDDs, godlike roles. And we have to take doctors off that pedestal also. It is unrealistic and unfair to them because they're real people who need rest and recreation and positive strokes and tender loving care and, uh, and an appropriate work uh, domain versus these workaholic pressures. All right. Well, we're, we're, we're towards the end of the show. There were a couple of things I, I wanted to, to, to – final words I wanted to get um, from you. One is we like to ask our guests specific things they would say to patients – uh, to, to, to help patients make sure they're getting the best possible health care. Any thoughts on that? Um, I think part, part one would be prepare yourself as long as it's not a terrible, terrible uh, uh, situation where it's a crisis or a disaster situation. Prepare yourself for the interaction so that you come prepared with the best information you can give to the nurse or the doc or the providers that are taking care of you. And you do, and you do diligence in, in preparing yourself for that, and that's ideally in writing, or brought, or at least brought with you, preferably in writing, and then brought with you and given to the, the team that is taking care of you. Um, number two, um, if you have something you want to say or ask, uh, let the doctor know in the in the give and take of the communication. I really want to tell you what I, where I think this is coming from, where it's leading to, uh, what I'm most concerned about, what I'm most fearful about. And if a physician doesn't give you an opportunity to share those things, particularly fears about or concerns about or what I think the issue is or whether I can or cannot comply with the treatment plan you have, uh, we've got a problem in communication because there's no partnering that's going on then. I think that's really important. The fine partnering. Yeah, sorry. Excellent. The final issue I, I wanted to, to bring up with you is you've, you've learned so much uh, from working with doctors about people's well-being, you know, with this, what I like to think of as an at-risk group. What would you tell the listeners about their own well-being, the things that they should keep in mind or do? Well, the kinds of things that, that we ask uh, our docs to do, and if they do them regularly, uh, they'll be more likely to look on each morning as hopeful, more likely to be be thankful for what occurs in that day as they're surviving and, and however they're surviving, are having a good listener confidant, if you wish, a loving relationship. And uh, so a healthy person has someone or some group, some small relationship, that's a, a someone you can be honest and sharing with and don't have to put any facade on. So a love relationship is really important. Obviously, we're very concerned about exercise and nutrition. And so what you take in is really uh, what sustains you every day. So that's a second piece that's important, the kind of nutritional intake you take. Are those kinds of things uh, balanced and healthy for who you are and what your, your uh, nutritional needs are? An exercise system, when, when doctors get more and more exhausted and tired and overworked, particularly during med school and residency and fellowship, uh, the first thing they cut out is their access to, to uh, hobbying, fun, relationship, 
social, uh, and exercise things. So they so they reduce their self care. So self care is really important. So you've got exercise, you've got food, a spiritual relationship that allows you to handle tragedies and grief and bad things happening to good people. And that requires someone who can share those things with you or a community of people who can share those kinds of things. And I think most important, when you set goals and objectives of what you want to do to, to take care of your, your balance in life and your happiness in life and your satisfaction in life, as you accomplish those goals, as long as they're, 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 uh, first they're, they're, they're uh, realistic, as you accomplish those, uh, small, they don't have to be big ones, they, that's what may occur, give yourself a stroke. Good for me. I said I was going to uh, reduce my caffeine intake. I said I was going to reduce my sugar intake. I said I was going to walk 30 minutes three times a week. Tell yourself, good for me, and be your own best friend and your own best coach. Those are the kinds of things we teach our physicians. And we also ask them, do you have your own personal physician? Oh, very so good. So many of them don't have a personal physician. Do you have someone you can go to to deal with the things that are difficult for you at the, at the health level? Who can you ask for that? Wonderful advice. Dr. John Henry Fifferling, thank you so much for your insights today. Thank you, Stephen. John Henry shared some wonderful insights with us about physicians, and many of those insights I think are helpful for us in general. First is this issue of feedback that he finds so important, and, and certainly I agree with him about it. And it, it probably wouldn't take much to transform the whole system because if we trained one generation of new doctors to to accept feedback, to provide positive reinforcement, then when they're when those doctors become the teachers, they're going to do the same thing. They're going to be giving people positive feedback. And this is something we should look forward in probably every aspect of our lives. John Henry once also said that the doctors need not to be afraid of saying, I don't know. And I'll tell you, with my patients, I am not afraid of saying, I don't know at all. Um, Unfortunately, some patients don't want to hear that and really want more from me than that. But I think the most important things that John Henry pointed out are just the general aspects of well-being that we should all be thinking about. Certainly doctors, this at-risk group, need more rest and relaxation. And in general, we should be making sure that, that we're not putting our lives to waste, that we all ought to be having fun and, 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 and have some hobby, exercise, take good care of how, of how we eat and ourselves, having a great uh, partner, a listener, a loving partner is another fabulous thing he, ish, he, he mentioned. And, and I think he mentioned also spiritual um, issues and, and, and having a community that we are part of, whether it's a religious spiritual community or some other form of spiritual community. I think I, have a, as a physician, have a physician community that helps me in that regard. But I wonder sometimes if, if my friend John Henry would tell me that I, that I need more than that. Finally, let's just remember a couple things he said about our, our visits to our doctor. Just make sure we have our concerns in writing. Don't be afraid to share them with the doctor. Our doctors really do care. They go to great extremes, John Henry will tell us. They probably go to two great extremes to help their patients sometimes. So do share your concerns with your doctor, and hopefully you will have a great medical experience. Thank you so much for joining me today. 
I hope you'll join us next time. Thank you for joining us today for Getting Better Healthcare. For more information about Dr. Feldman and about healthcare, please visit drscore.com. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E dot com. And we'll see you back here next week.